You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Rethinking the way adults connect with technology, MOOCs go mainstream, the societal reasons for dental decay. Hello and welcome to Talking Eds, APN Educational Media's weekly review podcast, comprising the team behind Early Learning Review, Education and Review and Campus Review. I'm Patrick Avenal and I'm the news editor for these sites. I'm joined today by Lauren Smith from Early Learning Review. Hi Lauren. Hi. How's your week been? Really good. How's yours? It's been very nice. And also for the final time, Wesley, filling in for James. How are you going, Wesley? Good afternoon, Patrick, and thank you very much for having me on board again. It's great to have you on board. Nice to hear you modulating your voice on this Friday afternoon for the podcast. Unintentionally, of course, but uh, given the feedback, and not just feedback by radio. Have you, had a good, have you had a good time with us the last three weeks? I've had a very fulfilling and productive time, and I've enjoyed every second of it immensely. Excellent. Well, in part one, Lauren, you published a story on Early Learning Review this week about technology. Tell us all about it. Alright, so this was an opinion piece by a number of academics, two from Wollongong University and one who was actually from the University of Rhode Island in the US. And it was all about the way adults use mainly their phones when we speak of technology while their children are around and the impact that this can have on their children's development. So basically the authors pointed out that adults should consider how they are modelling their behaviour for their kids. So um, we're always talking about screen time for kids, but what about screen time for adults, especially with young kids? Because um, there are numerous studies that show that it's really important to communicate with young kids for their language development. So if parents are always on their phones, that can be a problem. So the authors gave two examples of how this can become an issue. One is where parents are, say, at the park with their kids or so-called watching an after-school activity while they're actually watching their phones. Another example is when their kids ask them questions and the parents say, hold on a moment, while they look at their phone, look at Facebook, send emails for work. Um, That can be a problem. So in terms of how communication with kids can help them in terms of their language ability, It's about responding to their questions. It's also about introducing new words, new concepts and new perspectives. Um, As well as that, there's also um, studies that show that an increased vocabulary, which kids can get from adults talking to them, can lead to better later reading proficiency and also social and emotional development. Yeah, I I thought that was a really, really interesting story. And at the risk of sounding like an old fogey, Times have changed a lot just in the last 10 years. You used to see kids walking around the city or in parks with sort of a wide-eyed sense of wonder at how big the world was around them. Now you see them all and they're just heads down straight into the tablet or the phone. Uh, especially this week, everyone's playing Pokemon Go. And it ju- it, you do sort of think to yourself that, they're, that you know, they're missing out on the real world around them because their face is in a game or in a, or a webpage or, or just in a screen. And uh, you, you see... I've seen kids of my friends, they get their, their parents' phones, they immediately know to how, how to unlock the phone, how to access a game, how to access the app store. You know, in the old days, run up a huge bill. And you do feel as though a key part of childhood is, is being lost, which is just the, the sense of wonder that comes from finding out about the world around them. 
Yeah, so this is actually about how parents are teaching their kids bad habits in terms of screen time, but more importantly, not communicating with their kids as much. So it's kind of taking that concept a step further and saying, well, where do kids learn this from? They're learning it from their parents who are addicted to their phones. Yeah, do you, are you addicted to your phone, Wesley? You know, I'm not especially guilty of it, but I can uh, recount many instances where, you know, I'm just looking at my phone and my, I've got a three and a four year old myself and uh, they, they're just wanting to get my attention and, uh, you know, something else is my attention and I don't mean to sound, you know, uh, gruff or as if I'm trying to avoid them, but yeah, it's, it's definitely an, an issue that, you know, when you think about it, children deserve your undivided attention and electronic devices can um, can betray that. Do you have any technology rules in your household? Not especially. However, um, we do limited TV time in our household, even though it's not really to do with uh, smart devices. But we ourselves say, you know, we'll give you some time on uh, on iPad or the iPhone, but as soon as mommy or daddy says uh, that's enough then they have to discontinue their, their viewing of it. And, and are your kids, I mean, three and four, I, I hear that and I think they must be very young, but mm. how tech savvy are they? Could they teach you a few things? Uh, for now, I think it's all fairly uh, rudimentary, um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're gonna, they're gonna um, more than leap onto the technology bandwagon very sometime, very, very soon in the near future. <laughs> Lauren, at the risk of teaching Wesley how to do his job, what parenting tips would you give him based upon the, the work of these experts? Oh, come on now, Patrick. But go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm no parenting expert. I don't have any children yet. Um, but, yeah, based on what these experts are saying, you really need to consider um, what you're doing when your children are trying to interact with you verbally and the effect that that can have. Wesley, this week you looked at MOOCs which are growing in popularity around the world and are hitting the mainstream in a big way. Tell us about MOOCs. What does it stand for? What do they do? Okay, so a campus review story I did this week was about an Australian first massive online open courses, oh, first with massive online open courses or MOOCs. Uh, MOOCs, as many in the educational community are probably aware, are online courses that offer students in Australia and around the world the opportunity to study and educate themselves for free through uh, pre-recorded lectures, problem sets and interactive discussion forums. Uh, they're generally regarded as a try-before-you-buy approach to tertiary education where students can get a taste of content in courses before actually enrolling them. Um, however, in an Australian first, uh, in a recent move by two universities, James Cook in Queensland and the University of Tasmania, um, they're incorporating a MOOC into the actual curriculum of two units they're offering. So basically students can complete studying a MOOC, uh, print out a certificate of completion, and then have the uh, course count towards a degree um, rather than just this free online study time. And, and how is this going to change this, the university experience for students? Well, I think basically, as I was saying, the university ex experience uh, can be changed by this becoming like a, a free stepping stone into uni. So 
essentially the students can study this online course in their own spare time. It's free, of course, and uh, you know that they they can complete it to do all the the material required, dis, uh, participate in these discussion forums, and then use their uh, knowing that time that they've spent doing and studying the course, completing it will actually count in a very small but significant way to the course they're studying. Um, and uh, just as an introduction in Australian first, James Cook has actually applied it to a, a world music unit that has been run by a gentleman professor by the name of David Salisbury. And uh, quoting him directly, he said, we're offering marks for students who download and supply their certificate of completion Basically, I'll be giving them an extra 10% credit, which for students who may be on the borderline of a grade, as a fee-paying student, can actually mean a better grade. I have a question about the fact that Salisbury mentioned that this can help kids who are on the verge of failure, um, and he also specified international students. Could this be an attempt by these unis to ensure that they continue to get international student fees which are higher than those of domestic students? That's a great question. I didn't actually broach that with uh, the general manager, but it can be a discussion uh, for the future, no doubt. It certainly sounds as though it would be a, a nice tactic to be able to have up your sleeve if, if a student was at risk of flunking out and you wanted to keep them in. I, I quite like the idea of the MOOC because you know, university courses generally can be intensely boring and this is trying to, by putting it online and by making it uh, sort of in the, in the crowd, the, the, the more people that are doing it and responding and giving feedback on it, it generally can make them better and more entertaining and more interesting. And so I actually quite like the idea that you can actually assess by dropout rates in lifetime, really, if people are closing programs and closing videos, just how interesting and informative our lecture is and you can go back and you can say look you've obviously got to up your game because you started with a thousand people and you had none after five minutes and I also think that the the uh, the idea of it actually counting is really important now I think that it's legitimizing the the, the MOOC or the MOOC and that and that will help it to become more widespread and it, and it brings education it, 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 it it makes them more equitable, so people who cannot get themselves physically to a lecture theatre can still receive a university-like or university-standard education, which I, which I think is very good because it, it drops some, um, some of the barriers to entry. And just adding to that discussion, I mean, uh, from what I... I uh, following my discussion with uh, the, the general manager of the Australian arm that runs MOOCs, uh, open to Study, which was launched by Open Universities in 2013. Uh, his, name is, his name is Hanny Banner. He said Australia is actually hopping on board the international bandwagon through this move as a lot of, a lot of countries that are currently uh, offering or in, a lot of countries that are incorporating MOOCs into their curriculum. A lot of countries have already incorporated MOOCs into their curriculum, and we can see evidence of this in the, the US and Europe. Part three today, I spoke with a fellow named Marco Perez from the University of Adelaide during the week, and he is a dentist 
who started his study at the University of Sao Paulo and then has moved to Australia to take up residence in South Australia. And he's embarking on a pretty incredible study into adult oral health. Over the course of the next three years, he intends to interview 15,000 people around Australia about their dental service use, their service mix, their oral health behaviours, and their socioeconomic conditions. And the idea behind this is to look at whether what factor socioeconomic roles play in your oral health. And his, uh, I guess his starting point is his belief that uh, dental hygiene is based mostly around uh, how your access to means in order to uh, have clean health, in order to, at the basic level, buy a toothbrush and toothpaste, and then to have regular checkups at the dentist, to go to orthodontists and periodontists in order to get, uh, to get fixes as you go. And the plan is to interview uh, these 15,000 people and then go back in 10 years and interview them again to find out how their teeth have changed. And uh, this is what he says about it. This is a unique opportunity to assess changes in oral health conditions and its de determinants over time across the country. We know that oral diseases are prevalent in the adult population and particularly so among disadvantaged groups. We need a dental health care system that delivers quality care in an effective and equitable manner. So the long-term purpose from uh, Dr. Perez uh, seems to be in order to present some clear empirical evidence that shows we, unless that we target socio, socio, socially disadvantaged people with uh, help for them to go to the dentist and for them to get the tools to improve their dental health, we're going to have an underclass of people with terrible teeth and, and you, know, you know, British mouths, as we say. And uh, I thought this was a really interesting uh, uh, interview. It was part of our new profile series on Campus Review. And uh, I'm interested to know what you guys thought about it. Lauren, do you think that we should be looking at taking a more of a social approach to dental health? I don't really know enough about the state of our country's dental health, um, but it sounds good. I, I'd actually like to know more about it, why people from lower socioeconomic brackets tend to have poorer dental health? I think that at, at the most basic level, it's that they look at the dentistry and they look at oral care as uh, uh, expendable uh, outgoings. They look at it and they say, you know, I have a choice between, you know, putting petrol in the car or taking my kids to the dentist and they, and they choose the petrol in the car and then that goes on instead of having a checkup every six months, like a lot of kids do, they get to 18 and they've never been to the dentist. And instead of buying, you know, the best toothbrush and the best toothpaste, which might cost you know, $15, they buy the, the cheapest, which might cost $3. And I think that that over a long period of time, and you end up with uh, people from backgrounds that don't have a lot of disposable income, end up having really bad teeth. And, and, you know, we live in a country where healthcare is supposed to be free and equitable across the board. Right. Um, yeah, interesting discussion, this, because I think a lot of people take the, um, have the attitude, as the common adage says, goes, if it, if it broke, if it's broke, don't, you don't need if fix it. it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> That's the one I was getting at, getting tongue-tied a bit. So in the same way, I think with uh, dental hygiene and oral hygiene, there are many people, particularly low SES, uh, from low SES demographics that say, if it ain't hurt, I don't need it to be checked out. Because I don't know if 
the the exorbitant fees that are charged often, I think, ward people from these particular demographics off, uh, you know, such that it just doesn't become a priority for them. So the this study should should show some uh, should should so show marked differences. Uh, should show marked differences with within demographics, low, different demographics. Yeah, I think you make a really good point about that. If it ain't hurt, don't check up on it. It's like almost as if um, preventative measures, checkups, whether it's the dentist or whether it's you know just the basic doctor or whether it's a back specialist, it is for a lot of people a luxury. And I think that, that that's something that as a society we need to look at and see how we can ameliorate that issue on the whole. Absolutely. It's also an insurance issue because I know dental is considered an optional extra on many private mm. healthcare policies. And then again, it's back to the additional money issues. Mm. So maybe we need to look at the insurance industry and how we can possibly regulate that to make dental care more affordable. No, I agree. I, dentistry isn't homeopath, homeopathology or aromatherapy. It's an essential part of our, of our health system. It's not, it's not a luxury or a, or a pseudoscience. Now, as part of this profile series, we're trying to get to know the academics in Australia a little bit better, and we're not just asking them about the amazing research they're doing, we're also asking them about their lives and how they came from, a lot of the times, overseas to be here, and, and just getting to know them and a bit about their personality. And one of the questions we asked Dr. Marco Perez was for his three favourite films, and he, he said uh, Germinal, which is based on an Emile Zola novel, Fiddler on the Roof, which is a classic... Uh, Jewish-based musical, and they don't wear black ties, or Elas now will sound black tie, which is a Brazilian human drama about a division in a family caused by different political views during the Brazilian dictatorship period. And one of the great things about this profile series is that when asking people what books they're reading or what films they love, we really are getting a fantastic cross-section of films because uh, Dr. Perez is from Brazil, he's chosen a Brazilian film. I did one today with an Hungarian neurophysicist who has put up a couple of really interesting uh, Hungarian language films that I'll be keen to check out. And so just to finish off today, we're going to go around and just talk about our favourite films. Wesley, I know you're a big film buff. Shoot, what are your three favourite films? My three favourite films have to be uh, The the Clown. Would have to be The Coen... Would have to be The Coen Brothers... 1996 black comedy Fargo, uh, recently adapted to um, to TV um, and winning a couple of Emmy awards there too. It um, features some incredible performances, uh, most notably by Frances McDormand, the um, one of the director's wives, Joel Cohen, and also two. You said two more. Two more. Uh, the Social Network. I'm a huge David Fincher fan. And uh, that just, it was, um, it's essential viewing, even if you aren't really uh, on Facebook or any kind of social media. The just, the narrative is just propelled forward in the most incredible way. And the third one would probably have to be The Usual Suspects. Um, Of course, director Brian Singh has gone on to um, mega blockbuster films in Hollywood, but that was where he started. Um, Of course, uh, Kevin Spacey, uh, putting in a stellar performance, award-winning as well um, mm. as Kaiser Soze. It's been 21 years. Can we spoil the usual suspects for, for any? No, I guess we want people to 
hear this and go and watch it fresh. I think so. But yeah, there is a major plot twist, isn't there? Lauren, your favourite films? Oh, this is a tough one. I've racked my brains. Um, the first one that came to my head was Before Sunrise, directed by Richard Linklater. It's just such a beautiful film and I feel like it really reflects the reality of young love and the fleetingness of it at times. Um, yeah, otherwise, um, anything with Winona Ryder. She's my girl crush. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. The Age of Innocence, is, is it? That's I was it. thinking of Little Women, actually. Oh, yeah, but that's women, good as well. Reality Bites, you know, there are so many Heathers, Beetlejuice. Reality Bites would be on my list uh, of my favourite films. Probably Goodwill Hunting and Igby Goes Down would be my other two. Was Winona Ryder in Goodwill Hunting? I think that no, was but she yeah. was in Reality Bites. Oh, my bad. The uh, Mini Driver was the, oh. the female lead in Goodwill Hunting. Yes. You're giving yourself away, a child of the 80s. <laughs> well, I was born in 1981, so... Yeah. Really? You're in a, only a year older than I am. Yeah, but, you know... I feel as though I'm still rocking this medium-sized Bruce <laughs> t-shirt as well as anybody could. Sorry, I didn't mean to say that, Patrick. <laughs> Wesley, you're leaving us to, yeah. uh, to return to study. Where, what are you studying? I'm actually um, a semester into uh, Master of Teaching Secondary and um, be graduating, all things permitting, uh, 2017. Well, thank you very much for stepping into James's seat while he's been on leave, gallivanting around East or Western Europe. Uh, we hope to have you back at some stage. Oh, I'd love to be back sometime in the near future, and it's been an absolute pleasure being able to uh, uh, talk, shop, talk shop all things um, education, early childhood, and other uh, subjects with you all these past three weeks. That's great. Lauren, thanks very much for joining us here again. Where can people read your stories? Earlylearningreview.com.au And you can check out... Education Review and Campus Review to read stories by me and Wes. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks. Bye, Wes. Thank you. See ya.